0: Everybody doing all right? Yeah. Well, the bad news is I got up at 1 o'clock this morning. <laughs> the good news, is I went to bed at 7 o'clock last night. So uh, that would be six hours of sleep, plenty. No, I just got back from Israel. And so I'm dealing with some jet lag. Uh, we had a phenomenal experience there just uh, seeing God work. And he's building his church and people's lives um, all over our state, all over our country, all over the world. Back in Mark's gospel, and uh, last week we looked at something we call the transfiguration. Uh, this is basically when Jesus takes his mask off uh, and, and, and shows the disciples who he is. Um, he takes off the veil. And I think for the first time, James, Peter, and John, who go up on that mountain, uh their their eyes are open to the unveiled Christ and i don't know like when 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 you pray when you worship when you talk to god when you read the gospels like i don't know what comes to your mind uh because god gave us minds he he gave us imaginations uh like like what do you think of when when you think of christ and i think most of us kind of just understand Jesus to be this Jewish carpenter, uh, this rabbi, this this humble human being, all of which Jesus became. But we can't keep him there. Because I think if we do, we are in danger of, of, of making Jesus into our own image. As we learned last week, when the disciples see Jesus taking his mask off, Unveiled in all of his glory, they were terrified. Or think about Saul, Paul, on his Damascus road. All he could do is fall face down as if he was dead when he saw the glorified Christ. Think about John in Revelation chapter 1 uh, when he sees Christ in, in all of his glory unveiled. All he could do is fall down like a dead man and so if, 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 if you want to envision Jesus, maybe the closest thing that we have, the next time the sun is shining in all its brilliance, just go outside and look at it. Or see, see how long you can look at it, because I think that is the closest thing that we have that depicts the glory that is in Jesus Christ. And that is why one day, when all humanity finally sees him in his unveiled state, uh, they will be left with one recourse, and that will be to fall down, face down in worship. And this is how you know if you've seen the real Jesus. Now, why do I say all of this? Because the transfiguration not only shows us who Jesus really is, but it also Provides us a window into what we are becoming, what we will one day become, because that word for transfigured in John or in Mark, chapter nine, verse three, um, in Greek, it's the word metamorphos. And if you think about uh, what a caterpillar does and how it becomes a butterfly, I mean that 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 is described as, as a metamorphosis. Um, it means to be superly, supernaturally transformed from the inside out. And so what, what Peter, James, and John witnessed that day um, is, is also looking into what is happening to us. It's the same word, uh, metamorphosis, is the word uh, that Paul uses in Romans 12 when he says, do not be conformed any more to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of, my, of your minds. It's, it's the word metamorphosis. Or how about uh, this text from 1 John chapter 3? Where it says, dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be, what we will one day be has not been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him. We'll be like him. Or how about this uh, from Second Corinthians? Chapter 3, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, right now are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory. That, that's going on, and that word transformed is, is the word metamorphosis. We will all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is spirit. And this is why uh, Revelation, when when it describes us in in the age to come, it says that we're going to be wearing these dazzling white robes. Our faces are going to be radiant. And we're going to be without stain, blemish, or defect. We will be transfigured, glorified for all eternity. And I know I use this quote uh, on a few other occasions uh, by C.S. Lewis, but it it, it so nails it. Just in your minds, (laughs) try to drink this in. God said in the Bible that we were gods, and he is going to make good on his words if we let him. He will make the feeblest and filthy of us into a god or a goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy, joy, wisdom, and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a much smaller scale, his own boundless power, delight, and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. This is what he meant when he said, come follow me. And so when we become Christians, we're not signing up for moral reformation. We are signing up to be supernaturally transformed. Becoming a disciple is entering the crucible of becoming like Christ, redeemed, restored, repaired, renewed, recreated. And this whole metamorphosis begins now. And I think Mark 9, the text that we're going to look at today, spells out how we can actually become like him. There are five specific things in our text, but listen before before we dive into this. Do you even want to change? I mean, Jesus had to ask that question to this man who was lame for 38 years. Do you want to get well? Do we want to change? Let's stand for the reading of Mark chapter nine. I'm going to connect this to last week, so I'm going to read verse two. In verse 9, and then our text begins at verse 14. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There, Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anything the world could bleach them. And Then you know the rest of this because we looked at it last week. Then verse 9 as they were coming down the mountain. I want to highlight Jesus going up the mountain, transfigured, now going down the mountain. Verse 14, our text. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder, and they ran to greet him. What are you arguing about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Rabbi, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth. He becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground. He rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, the dad answered. It has often thrown him into fire and water to kill him. But if you can do anything, please take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, Everything is possible for the one who believes. And immediately the boy's father explained, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And when, the crowd saw, when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed violently, and came out. And the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him to his feet, and he stood up. And after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This can can only come out by prayer. You can be seated. So let's connect this to, to last week. Again, five specific things to, to bring about this metaphor, metamorphosis, this, this spiritual transformation in our lives. Uh, verse two said, they went up the mountain where they were all alone. Uh, they're, they're alone with Jesus. And this is where change begins. When we go up the mountain and we get alone with Jesus. Change happens when we seek His face. When we retreat from this world, and where we go up, uh, and and we're enveloped by the the glory of God in Christ. Uh, this is what all the greats in the Bible. If if you read the narrative, they they do this: Abraham, Moses, Elijah, David, Isaiah. Paul, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. They went to the mountain of the Lord and they sought God with all their heart. They sought God's face. They sought his presence. And they sought God as as men who were uh, desperate Desperate for God. Does that describe you? I mean, I'll just give you some of the flavor. So much of this uh, comes out in in, in the Psalms. Um, you know these these men. Uh, And women sought God in in, in times of fear. Psalm 27. uh, David said, "Though a whole army surround me, even then I will not be afraid." How can a guy say that? I mean, I don't know what you do with your fear today. I see so many people just gripped with fear. But David says in Psalm 27, "One thing I ask of the Lord: This is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple." That's where David goes with his fear. And then he says, For in the day of terror, God will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent. He will set my feet high above on a rock. Or how about in times of depression? In Psalm 42 and 43, three or four times, David says about his soul, Soul, why are you depressed? Why are you so full of despair? But he begins this psalm by saying, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? And it's in this place where he says, Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. And then I will go to God, my joy and my delight. Psalm 63, David writes this. Literally, when he loses absolutely everything a person could lose in life, and what comes out of his mouth, Oh God, you are my God. Passionately I seek you. My body longs for you. My soul thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary. I have beheld your power and your glory. Can you say that? And he says, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. My soul will be satisfied with the richest of foods. Or Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh, they cry out for the living God. And what does the psalmist say in light of that? "Blessed are those who dwell in your heart house, for they are ever praising you, and blessed are those whose strength is in you, for they go from strength to strength." Let me ask you a question. Are you dissatisfied with God? <laughs> are you bored with God? Are you dissatisfied with Jesus? Just be honest. Can I suggest a likely reason? It's probably because you don't know that the deepest longing of your heart right now, it's not your job, it's not your career, it's not a boyfriend, it's not a girlfriend, it's not money. It's not the latest gadget or a nice vacation. It's not beauty or popularity. The deepest desire of your heart right now is God. Right now, whether you know it or not, your heart longs for intimacy with Christ to be close to Jesus. And if you don't know this or you don't have that, you will be perpetually dissatisfied with God. You will be dissatisfied with his church, with worship, with prayer, with taking in God's word. You'll be dissatisfied with God's mission uh, to be in partnership with him, to repair a broken world. And mostly, you'll be dissatisfied with yourself. And so let me offer a life-changing solution Admit that. Admit it. Admit that you don't know God. Or admit that you really don't care about God. And and, and stop like pretending or or playing this game. And then seek Him. Take hold of Him. Cry out to Him. Pray to him, God, change my heart. Make my heart hungry for you, thirsty for you. Teach me how to pray, Lord. Teach me how to worship. Teach me how to hear your voice. Show me your glory. Because God's word says, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Now, how do I know if I'm seeking God with all my heart? I just look at my heart. And I know. I I know and only I know. Can your heart right now pray, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. Can you say, oh God, you are my God. Passionately I seek you. My body, it longs for you. My soul, it thirsts for you. In this dry and weary world where there is no water. See, and it's not that our hearts lack in wanting or desiring. It's that we want and desire the wrong things. See, God made our hearts to want, to crave, to pant for something as great as God. And until we get God into the center of our souls, we will be utterly Dissatisfied. I remember when I was in college, and think about this. This is, this is over three decades ago. This, this has stuck with me. Um, the, the college pastor of our church, Jerry Root, he, he, he said, he said, when I have no desire for God, when, when there's no want in my heart, he says, I just, I just pray to God. I say, God, would you give me that want and he says sometimes i even pray god would you help me to want to want you i'm going to tell you without regular mountaintop experiences with jesus you and i will never change now what happens when when jesus and the three disciples leave the mountain i mean verse 9 uh, talks about jesus coming down the mountain and the reason I want to just highlight that verse is because uh, this, is, this is a picture of Moses. Um, I don't know if you remember uh, the story of Moses, but Moses, too, went up to the mountain. He would meet with God. He would talk with God. He would commune with, with God. He, he'd be so in the presence of the glory of God that when he came down, his face was radiant. And it was so scary to the people that he had to wear a veil <laughs> And then when I look at the response of the people, when Jesus comes down in verses 14 to 15, uh, they see Jesus, and, and they're filled with this awestruck wonder. In fact, there's elements of, of, of fear to this because Jesus, like Moses, needs a veil. And see, they're barely down the mountain, and, and they're confronted with the brokenness and the utter chaos of our world. Here's this young kid, just... Mark is very descriptive here. He's young. He's someone's son. He's demonized. He's overpowered by by darkness. He goes into convulsions. He's flapping at the mouth. And here's this, this father, this broken father who's utterly helpless to do anything about it. We are not just changed through mountaintop experiences with Christ, but we're changed when we engage a broken, fallen, chaotic world with Jesus. If I could play my cards right now, this is something that I've been thinking about for the last year. I'm not that concerned about Crossroads, but I think it still applies to Crossroads, but it's just a concern in general that I have... Uh, For the church is that we're just going to go and we're going to run And we're going to hide from all the chaos all the brokenness All the darkness in our world And we're just going to go do life where it's easy and comfortable And why would we do that (laughs) because we can but Jesus said these words. He said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put that light on a stand and it gives light to everything in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give praise to your Father in heaven. Sorry. Sorry. We don't get the luxury to go and do life where it's easy and convenient and comfortable. And I love this, this, this let your light shine, let, let, let them see your good deeds. The, the word there for good is, is not good in a moral sense, it's, it's the word for beauty. It's good in the beautiful sense. It's it's the call on our lives to live a beautiful life, to do beautiful deeds, to walk a beautiful life like Jesus. And what is this beautiful walk? Well, just if you look at the context in which Jesus says this, it's a sermon on the mount. And that sermon keeps going and he spells it out. Uh, The beautiful walk is when we love people who are unlovable. It's when we forgive people who are unforgivable. It's when we pursue the forgotten and the marginalized, when we serve those who no one else serves, and and we become uh, the voice for the voiceless. And we do this in a way in which we're hardly noticed or we go unnoticed. And God says, I want to push that kind of beauty right into the heart of the chaos and the darkness of our world. And see, if we didn't hear it in that analogy, then Jesus says, well, you are the salt of the earth. And salt is something to us that that we apply to our food to flavor it, but salt in the ancient world was first and foremost the world's uh, preservative. It's what kept things from rot and from spoil. You just rub it into the meats and into the fish and therefore you'd preserve it. And so Jesus is using this picture, and he's saying, our, "Our call is not just to be salt, but we're salt of the whole Earth, which means we are to fill the Earth. We are to attach ourselves to every earthly reality, to people, to neighborhoods, to the nations. And our call in attaching ourselves to the world is to keep it from rotten decay. See, and when we do this, and when we do this in partnership with Jesus, we are changed. We become like Him. I don't know how much you've lived your life in, in partnership with God. And it doesn't even have to be the big thing of, 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 of going to the nations and, and going on a mission trip. It, it could just be living your life on mission 24-7, 365, where you care about people. You care about your neighbors. You're, you're living into the sphere that God has entrusted to you. This is where I've experienced profound change in my life. I mean, we think we're we're on a mission to change the people around us, change the world, but, but every time um, I live into this, I, I find myself changed. Third, we are in we are changed. We are transformed from the inside out when we engage our broken and fallen world with prayer. Look at verse 28 and 29. This, this this is amazing what Jesus says here. His disciples tried to perform that exorcism. They tried to bring God's shalom to that chaos, and, and, and they couldn't. And so they're asking Jesus, like, what happened there? And, and Jesus says, this only comes out through prayer. Now listen, that isn't just a pastor preaching to my own heart, to to, to inspire my heart to pray. It's it's not me right now. Those aren't my words to inspire us to to pray. These are the actual words of Jesus. This only comes out through prayer. And when are we going to realize that we don't program God's kingdom, we we don't throw money at it, or we don't bring his kingdom into the world by building building buildings, Christ's kingdom comes when we pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I want to be part of a church. And I'm preaching to myself first and foremost right now. I get lazy with prayer. But I want to be a church that lives into this. Thank you for this morning and that little moment when, 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 when we open it up to prayer in this gathering, that it's not crickets, but that people are just stepping into that. And that we don't only do it here, but 24-7, 365, wherever we are. Now listen, I, I know some of you struggle with prayer. I mean, the concept of prayer, does it, does it make sense like, why do we pray? I, I, I will give you one reason. Jesus prayed. You read the Gospels. Jesus prayed sometimes through the night. Sometimes Jesus got up early in the morning to pray. He prayed 40 straight days. He was always looking for a mountain to go up and pray. Look at the church uh, in history. When the church is at its best is when it gives itself relentlessly to prayer. And when God calls his people in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, a nation of priests, we've looked at this. A priest is simply someone in the ancient world who who stood in the gap. The the person that best depicts this Right out of the gates in the story is Abraham in Genesis 18 when God says to Abraham, I've had enough with Sodom and Gomorrah. My judgment is coming down on them. And and you would think Abraham might even say to that, yes, it's about time, but he doesn't. At that moment, Abraham steps into the function of a Priest, he stands in the gap between God and wicked Sodom, and he pleads with God God, have mercy on them, save them. That's a priest. Where our world is broken, where our world is in pain, where people are far from God, that's where we need to be as priests. God wants a kingdom of priests. God wants uh, all of us to be Abrahams. Listen to what uh, Richard Foster says. He says, we are partnering with God to determine the future. Certain things will happen in history if we pray. We are to change the world By prayer. Do you know that there are certain stories in our Bible where because people prayed, God repents. He turns from what he was going to do to another path. I'll let you wrestle with that. I'm just giving you the facts. But I want to be a church that believes this, that lives into this idea that we can partner with God to change the world. Our world right now is desperate for the church to pray. Our land is increasingly sick. Our cities, our politics, our schools. People are in desperate need of healing. Healing. And I find this verse by the prophet Ezekiel in light of what God called them to be a nation of priests, people who stand in the gap, almost depressing. And I, I, I pray to God that he would not say this of us. God says, I look for someone among them who would stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. So I will pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my fiery anger. Listen, prayer not only changes the world, prayer changes me. It changes us. There's a little detail uh, in Luke's account of the transfiguration. Uh, it, It says this Luke, it says, Jesus was transfigured as he was praying. And that's what prayer does. Prayer always conforms my heart to God's heart. In fact, I am convinced right now that the people who give themselves to passionate, genuine prayer are are, are the most powerful people walking the face of the earth. They're supermen. They're superwomen. Because there's something else that happens when we pray, something that is internally powerful. Luke gives us another detail. Uh, when, when Jesus is, is baptized, he says, The Spirit descended upon Jesus, and Jesus heard God's voice when Jesus prayed. So it was when Jesus was praying that he heard God say to him, Son, I love you. I adore you. You are my delight. And if you want to know, Jesus, who gave up all his glory and became a human like us, could go face to face with Satan, how he can face trial and temptation. How he can endure hatred and rejection is he always has those words of his father ringing in his heart. And Right now, we can face anything, anything our world throws at us if we right now know that we are his beloved. Have you heard God say this to you? I love you, you are my beloved, I adore you. You are the focus of my delight, have you? You know, this made me think about my, my first 10 years of ministry as a youth pastor. I've literally worked with thousands of junior high and high school students. And I can tell you this, every, every son, every daughter is starving to hear those words from their dad, uh, from their mom. Uh, And so few hear these words. And I'm convinced that all the rebellion, all the hardcore sex and drugs is largely the result of young people not hearing their dad and their mom say these words. And as a result, there is a massive, massive father wound in so many. I'll speak from my own life. This is one thing I just, I know about myself. I'd be the worst of the worst. (laughs) I know that. I would. I would be the worst of the worst if, if, one, I didn't have two parents that said that to me often, but even more than that, if I didn't hear God saying that to me. I wouldn't have the strength or the courage to be a man, to be a husband, to be a father, if, if, if I didn't regularly hear God say to me, you are my son in whom I delight. Listen to Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen says, I, I know now that the words spoken to Jesus when he was baptized are the words spoken also to me and to all who are brothers and sisters in Jesus. He said, My tendencies towards self rejection and self deprecation make it hard to hear those words and let them descend into the center of my heart. But once I have received those words fully, I am set free from my compulsion to prove myself to the world and can live in it without belonging to it. In fact, once I have accepted the truth that I am God's beloved child, unconditionally loved, I can be sent into the world to speak and to act as Jesus did. And we have to regularly hear God say this to us. Because it sets us free from having to prove ourselves, as Henry Nouwen said, from this, this need to succeed, from being a perfectionist, a control freak. It sets us free from letting people down, disappointing other people. It sets us free from obsessing over our image and how we appear. It sets us free from needing to be right and blaming other people for our failures. It even sets us free to fail and to admit our weaknesses and our sins. Devote yourself to prayer, and you will become numb to the voices of our world, and you will regularly hear God's voice, you are my son, you are my daughter, and these words will melt your heart and change you from the inside out. Number four, we're changed when we come to Jesus helpless and powerless. Look at this father. This father is the only one in the story who admits utter helplessness. Verse 22, I mean, just look at that. To just have to watch your, your son in this condition, in full seizure mode, writhing in the ground, foaming at the mouth. Jesus, help us. Help us. We're helpless. And he even goes further than that. He says, even my faith, Jesus, it's weak. I need help. I believe, but I, I don't believe Help me. And see, I think so many of us think that we need to come to Jesus with this perfect record and with perfect faith. But don't you see, when we think that, we're really just trusting ourselves. We're not trusting Jesus. And here's the deal. God knows what we are. And so it's helplessness, not holiness, that we offer God. God. In fact, we have nothing to offer God but but, but helplessness and deep need. God knows this. God loves it when we lay down our pride. He loves it when we stop thinking too much of ourselves. He changes us when we offer to him our our helplessness and our desperation. This is why my my favorite lyrics from any song come from the hymn Rock of Ages. It's, it's, It's this verse. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, but look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Do you approach Jesus this way? Do you walk with him with this kind of attitude? And finally, we're changed when we entrust to Jesus our greatest treasure. I mean, look at this father. You can just see how much he loves his child. and He places his child in Jesus' hands. And, and even when it looks like things are getting worse, he entrusts his greatest treasure to Jesus. In fact, this beckons us back to, to the life of Abraham, uh, the faith of Abraham, who was asked by God to off- offer up his son Isaac. Abraham, do you trust me? Jesus is, is, is asking the same thing. Do you trust me? And here's the deal. For us to be transformed from the inside out, uh, we will have to give things up. We'll have to give up our lives. We'll have to give up our stuff. We'll have to give up our dreams. We'll have to give up our plans, our purposes. We'll have to give up the things that we treasure most. We'll have to give up living life for ourselves. But we're never going to change if we're holding on to our life, if we insist on holding on to the things that we value most. Now, I'll ask the obvious question. Why would anybody want to let go? I like living for me. I like to gain the world. I'll tell you why. Look at Jesus. Look at the path that Jesus chose. Jesus left the Mount of Glory for another hill. He is making his way to another hill that we call Calvary. In fact, his whole life on earth is between these two mountains. And think about it. On one mount, Christ is enveloped by the glory of God. On the other, he is surrounded by those who are mocking him, uh, laughing at him, taunting him, spewing hate at him. On one mount, his glory is unveiled, and he is seen in all his majesty. On the other mount, his glory is veiled, and he's seen as weak and helpless. On one mount, he's he's clothed in radiant white, his face shining like a sun. On the other mount, he's naked, and he is beaten to a pulp. He's too disgusting to even look at. And on one mount, he hears his father say, This is my son whom I love. On the other mount he hears his father's silence. So here's the question, why did Jesus leave the Mount of Transfiguration for the Mount of Crucifixion? Well, how did Jesus gain the whole world? He gained the world by losing everything, by emptying himself of glory, by losing all his possessions, his friends, his reputation. He loses his life. He loses even his father's voice. This is how Jesus gains the whole world. And here's the deal with this choice to leave that mountain for that other mountain. Jesus beats the whole system. Because the whole world's system is predicated on making it to the top, Being the best. Getting as much as possible. And Jesus just makes a mockery of that. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. The humble will be exalted. The exalted will be humbled. The world's losers will be the world's winners. And the world's winners will become the losers. Do you get that? Because if you don't get what I just said, you don't get Jesus. Do you know right now that you can gain the whole world and still lose? And you can lose everything for Jesus and gain everything? And see, this is why the journey as a discipleship is a journey to the cross. Like Abraham, God calls all of us to journey to the Mount of Sacrifice. And until we do, we will never become like him. But when we do, when we lay down our lives, when we lay down our earthly treasures, we'll become like him. We'll be transfigured. A metamorphosis that is so glorious. Right now, are you becoming like Jesus? Are you being transfigured? C.S. Lewis, he will make the feeblest and filthy of us into a god or a goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature. The process will be long and in parts, very painful. But Jesus meant this when he said, come follow me. Get to him. Go with him. Place your life in his hands. God, we just thank you that your way is not the world's way. God, fill us with your spirit. We need your power. We need your grace. We need your presence to forsake the world and to go your way so we can become like you. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.